Welcome to the Founder Stories podcast, brought to you by Engine E-Commerce, a show for e-commerce professionals by e-commerce professionals, where every show we dive into the first-hand accounts of how our guests started, built, and scaled their companies, and share the tactics and strategies used by the best operators in the game. Enjoy the show. Hey, this is John James. I'm the founder and CEO of Engine e-commerce platform. And today's the first episode of Engine's Founder Stories podcast. Uh, this podcast is for e-commerce professionals done by e-commerce professionals. So in, in addition to getting the firsthand account of how these founders built their successful business, we're going to do our best to dive deeper and get our guests to reveal some of their secret sauce as well. So in this series, I'm going to interview rock store founders, let them tell their story. I'm a 20-year e-commerce veteran myself. I uh, founded my first e-commerce business in 1995 and paid for medical school with the proceeds. Raised over $100 million of venture capital, most recently building and selling Acumen Brands, which was the parent company of Country Outfitter. So without further ado, let me introduce Justin Delaney, our first guest. He's the founder and CEO of Menguin, an online tuxedo rental brand recently acquired by Generation Tux, which was founded by Men's Warehouse founder, George Zimmer. They paid, I think, 25 million bucks for you guys. So congratulations on that. Uh, today, Justin and George Zimmer are co-running the combined Menguin and Gen Tux business, and sales are continuing to grow since the merger. So welcome, Justin. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. So for full disclosure, uh, I was actually uh, one of the earliest investors in Menguin, happy shareholder this day. But if memory serves, uh, man, when we met in 2015, you guys were, I don't know if you're crushing it. You're only doing what, what, $5,000 a month or something like that. Tell me how you got up to that point before we met. Sure. So John, you were technically probably the first real investor that we took. You know, we had raised some money from other investors through business plan competitions, but you were certainly the first person to see something in us and take that shot. And we appreciate that, obviously. Um, so getting to that first point was interesting, you know, that we met in early 2015 through Silicon Valley Bank and we had just finished 2014 and I think that year we did about $40,000 in revenue. So we were fairly small and getting to even that point took a year. So, you know, these things are, are kind of strange when you look back and realize how much time it all took. But initially what happened was when I was a student at Indiana University, um, we saw a problem in the market where through a combination of, um, you know, legacy and incumbents and just poor customer service, there is this somewhat large industry, a $1.5 billion suit and tuxedo rental industry that had a very, very uh, poor experience for customers. You know, we went out, we gathered data from customers. We noticed that 84% of people had a negative experience at stores like Men's Warehouse and Local Mom and Pop's. And then we started looking at 10Ks and we realized companies like Men's Warehouse were making almost software-like margins in the space, which, you know, is, is pretty exciting. And so that's, that's kind of how Menguin was born, was actually sort of through the pragmatism of business school in that we, we found this opportunity, we pragmatically sort of stress tested it, and then from there we, we found our first funding in IU alumni like Mark Cuban and Scott Dorsey through a business plan competition. And then from there, we, we started building the site. And so when you met us, we had launched the site probably about six months earlier, and we had sort of started to find product market fit. 
And so, and we had all quit our full-time jobs, which was important. I don't think you can try and check if, if, if that was not the case, obviously, right? So we, we all left our full-time jobs as sort of the, the original team in, in late 2014. And we met you in the first months of 2015. And yeah, we finished 2014, 40,000 in revenue. 2015 started. And when we met you, we were doubling every month. You know, I think we were like five and then 10 and then 20 and then 40. And you were like, well, this is pretty interesting. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that was kind of the story about how we, how we came to, to meet you. And then you, you, you know, you stroked us that first, uh, you know, big check. And, and I think the rest is history. Well, I tell you what, I almost didn't take the call. I mean, hey, here's this, this band of, uh, of guys that is running a very small little tuxedo rental business, which I didn't know anything about tuxedo rental. But, you know, I took the meeting just frankly because, hey, I get a phone call from Dale Kirkland at Silicon Valley Bank. That's a pretty powerful dude. And then I look at your little cap table and you've got a couple billionaires on there. I mean, Scott Dorsey sold Salesforce for two and a half, sold Exact Target to Salesforce for two and a half billion dollars. And then, you, of course, got Mark Cuban. I'm like, man, what could hurt having a 30 minute phone call with these guys? And boy, am I glad I did. Um, if I remember right, we, we chatted for what, 30 minutes or so. And I think I ended the call with, Hey, if you're ever in Northwest Arkansas, uh, love to sit down and whiteboard with you. And like, I get an email from you an hour later. So we'll be there tomorrow or something very similar. And so sure enough, you come here. Um, and we ended that whiteboard session. It was awesome. I, I loved hanging out with you guys. I don't think I'd even started my incubator yet at that point. And uh, I said, man, if you move to Arkansas, uh, we could really do some damage here. And, you know, I think you called me the next day or whatever and said, all right, we're moving to Arkansas. So what the hell were you thinking? Uh, and, and what did you hope to gain here? <laughs> so just looking back at my story and other entrepreneurial stories, I think one thing you notice between the people who are successful and the people that are not is the people who become successful are willing to do anything to gain an edge that will give their business that shot. And what we saw in you, John, was someone who believed in the model enough to give us money, but more so we saw an expert who had scaled something from nothing to you know, raising you know, an $83 million round and $14 million a month and all these um, incredible numbers Country Outfitter and Acumen Brands put up. What we saw is someone who knew the blueprint. And so our sort of thought was, okay, we could stay in Atlanta and sort of, you know, maybe talk to this guy once a month or literally move in to where he is and probably get a front row seat and get his undivided attention and learn everything we need to learn. And that was kind of what that was. We got a doctorate in e-commerce, you know, in, in six months or whatever from you. And the reason we, we made that sacrifice was because we thought it would work and it did. The, the story of perseverance and never giving up, I mean, that to me is, is the Minguin story at, at a T. So you guys, some of you are sleeping in a, in a warehouse with rats or squirrels or something. And, uh, and all of you would dress up in penguin costumes at wedding shows and you moved to Arkansas. T tell us a little bit more about this grit and gut that built the Minguin brand. Yeah, I mean, really fortunate to have early co-founders with me, you know, Kurt Sutton, a guy that would do anything for the company, Bogdan Constantine, never met a bigger hustler than him. And, um, you know, I obviously also feel the 
the need to do whatever it takes to make something work. And so between the three of us, it was like failure wasn't really an option. And so something like moving to Arkansas wasn't a big deal. You know, we would have done this in Arkansas and Afghanistan, you know, on a boat in the ocean. We didn't give a damn. Like it was just anything that gave us an edge so that we could be successful. And that's that's sort of the mindset. I don't I don't think there's anything necessarily like singular that is a great example of it. It's just a collection of all these things and the constant, you know, desire to take that next step and walk through that next wall and really not not get hung up on you know how hard it is and just to keep moving forward um so yeah i mean grit is the most important thing you know the golden rule of entrepreneurship is if you never give up you never lose you know and that's that's kind of it the second you say this venture is done i'm walking away from it you're done you lost there's and only two ways they go out of business right run out of money or the founder gives up and yeah. otherwise they just continue on and on Exactly. And, and so, yeah, without getting too much into the, you know, psychology of entrepreneurship, I'll, I'll take your next question. That's a probably two hour topic in and of itself, right, John? Listen, your investor updates are the most priceless pieces of literature that I get every, every month. Uh, I would love to talk uh, entrepreneurship and culture. We'll do that on another one. So let's, let's stick to the knitting a little more. But Hey, so $5,000 a month, you moved to Arkansas. Two years later, you sold the business for 25 million bucks. Dude, what happened? What'd you do? <laughs> well, so... We moved, we moved to Arkansas and there were four of us living at a house together. Actually, if I recall correctly, we broke a number of Arkansas's brothel rules because I think <laughs> technically in Arkansas, more than three people are not allowed to live together who are not related in the same house. <laughs> um, and so we all move in together, you know, kind of this crash pad of sorts. I got my, my wife and kid in Dallas, which I still don't know how I managed to convince her of that. And um, really that foundation set the stage for a scenario where we worked all the time. It was like Silicon Valley, you know, we would, we would work with you and, you know, Bill Clinton's old office on, at the, the square in Fayetteville. And then we would go home and we would work some more. And, and really what was great about that, that summer when we moved, moved to Arkansas and we're learning from you, I believe we moved there in May, was that you taught us a lot of the blocking and tackling of e-commerce you know um talk about you know iterative testing iterative testing or growth hacking you taught us about that uh the power of emails you taught us about that the power of you know getting leads and then doing everything you can to convert those leads you, you taught us about website optimization all these all these things that we didn't know about like maybe we knew it existed but we didn't know the importance of it you you helped teach us those things and then you know obviously we had to take those and apply them to our model in, in a way that made sense. But what ended up happening is that it instilled in us um, a, a way to, to build something that could grow. And so I think that year we did almost, you know, a million dollars in revenue. Uh, maybe it was like 750,000 or something like that. And a lot of it came down to just executing the tactics well. I mean, that's what you end up having is the scenario where the success of a business like is rarely some grand big idea that changes everything. It's, it's like 10,000 small things that you just do every day. And I think, I think you frame, put that framework out there for us from a marketing standpoint in a way that, that resonated with us and we were able to execute on it. And so we did it that year. And then the next year, you know, you, you know, you helped us in, in a lot of ways initially. And then we went out and raised money and just kept doing it. And then, you know, we, I don't know, quadrupled in size or whatever the next year. 
and then obviously got sold the following year. So that's that's kind of how it happened. But you know, getting from that forty thousand in twenty fourteen to almost a million in twenty fifteen, like you know, that's like a twenty x jump. And um, you know, that was that was really when it happened. And it was because we were living together, we were eating and breathing Menguin, we were doing everything we could every day. The company got better every single day, and that's I think that's what happens when you have people working together on one goal with you know good spirit guides like you and Mark Cuban and Scott. It, it was pretty neat to watch it. I'll tell you that. And, and I'll add to that. I mean, I think um, f- from my perspective, the, the idea of content plus commerce and um, the, the way you frame the customer journey. Um, yeah. Emails, your tactic. Yes. Uh, Facebook's your tactic, but the way you did the customer journey was, uh, it was spectacular, and, and to me, that was it. So, talk to me a little bit about content marketing and how you how you walk your customers through that journey and keep them engaged and entertained. Sure, it's so one of the, I guess, either flaws or features of the model, depending on who you ask, that we have to deal with is that we get customers who are going to be in our funnel for a year or so. You know, we're dealing with weddings. It's got a long sort of consideration funnel. It's very similar to SaaS honestly. So we take a lot of our, you know, strategies out of the SaaS playbook. Um, Content is important to me personally, because it was kind of how I got my first interesting job was actually as a blogger for AOL back in 2009 to 2011. You know, they they hired me as sort of, I was actually hired as a travel writer, and I got to travel the world, and I'd write stories about it. And this was in the pre-BuzzFeed, pre-Instagram days, um, where, you know, I would put out a story, it would go on the AOL homepage and get millions of views. And so content has always been in my DNA and something that I could see as um, a way to bring people together around a topic. So when we applied that to Menguin, it was all about, okay, we have this 12-month journey that the average customer is going through. And at 12 months out, they're considering wedding dresses. And at 10 months out, they're considering venue and, and, and bridesmaids dresses at nine months and tuxes and suits at three months and so on and so forth. And so we had to build a content delivery cycle that sort of mirrored where people were in that process so we could stay relevant. And ultimately also it was about giving somewhat um, utilitarian advice to people so that they would eventually trust us. You know, we're, we used to always say to you, John, we're not in the customer acquisition business, we're in the trust acquisition business. So the content marketing serves to sort of build that bridge of trust. And what's crazy is an article or a blog post we actually wrote while we were in, you know, Hayseed in the old post office in 2015, we're still running on Facebook. You know, it has millions of views. I get, I get an email about that blog post every 20 minutes because someone comments on it still. That's the power of content. You, you somehow find something that's sort of evergreen and, mm-hmm. and that works and is somewhat viral. And then you sprinkle in like brides or this customer base that changes every single year. And like you end up with like a blog post that's been living on Facebook and getting, you know, three to 10 likes or comments an hour for two years or three, sorry, three years almost. So it's, it's fascinating. Content plus commerce to me is, um, is the next frontier. You're right. It's a gift that keeps on giving if you do it uh, correctly. Um, It's part of why we're built engine Um, watching you guys struggle to get the technology in place firsthand and and you finally did today you guys are a tech uh masterpiece uh a full-blown technology company 
but watching earlier stage companies like yourself is really uh, why we were building engine to make these content plus commerce features um, there. So tell me a little about the early tech struggles. Uh, tell us about the tech driving your business. Um, that was a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> oh, good gracious. I mean, our, our entire, our, if I could sum up all of our early problems, they were all based on technology and the fact none of us were truly technologists. Um, it was really a shame because we had a great idea. We actually had the right market. I think everything was right, except we didn't know how to build the website we needed. Mm -hmm. If we were just selling cowboy boots online, maybe we could have handled those early iterations. But the fact that we had to deal with these wedding parties and invites and very complicated types of databases to deal with party structure and look structure. You know, you think about a guy that wants a black tuxedo and a blue tie and a, you know, blue vest and brown shoes. Like it's, it's a, it's a little more complicated than, um, you know, a more basic e-commerce platform. So we built this thing from the start and it didn't work. And that was the biggest issue. And so from a technology standpoint, we didn't have money to hire people in house initially. We had to outsource everything. So we, you know, had this, we luckily had this one developer in India that really helped us early on. And we built probably a Drupal site as, and we, we made it go as far as a Drupal site could have ever gone, like to its theoretical limits. And we were on Drupal through like probably, I mean, I bet collectively we'd done 5 million or 6 million in revenue on Drupal, which is crazy because it had largely been abandoned by that point. Um, but, you know, you find good PHP people and they can operate in that world. Um, but, you know, finally in 2016, we left Drupal and um, went to more of a custom solution and we had, we poached a technology guy from Zynga that helped us build this and sort of was our, um, he was kind of a like part-time CTO. Um, and we, we used a, a team of developers he worked with in Mexico and, and in a few other countries. And that was okay for a while. But today what we have is you know, we have a dedicated team of 12 developers and engineers. They're all, you know, great full stack guys. They can, they all understand design. They all understand the brand. They're sitting one room over from me so we can talk about it. We have a great CTO and Brian Webb that, that has been doing it for a long time. And so I've seen the pros and cons of doing it in the States with real American talent. And I've seen the you know, pros and cons of doing it outsourced in other countries where you have some language barriers. And, and um, obviously, sometimes you can't sit in the same room and just hash something out on the whiteboard. And I would definitely favor spending more for something and getting the results, right? Like it's because at the end of the day, if you were building a store, I'm like, let's take it back to retail before websites existed or Google search. If you were building a store, which a website is basically like we, Menguin and Gentux, we have two stores that are really important. Like you don't really want to skimp on your only true asset where your customer is interacting with you. And, and early on, like as a founder, you kind of have to, you have to find a way to build it. And thankfully, you know, Engine, Shopify, Magento, like there's a whole... Uh, universe of places where you can kind of get the the support to where, before you can like afford to have a twelve person engineering team, but um, it's certainly worth it once you get to scale because things work. And that was our biggest problem is like nothing ever worked on our site. Like every day something would break, we'd have to fix it. We'd be like, oh, we're not going to hit our numbers this month because there were like four days in the middle of the month where you know our event module broke and no one could event, invite groomsmen or whatever it was. It was just this constant incessant issue that we don't really have to deal with anymore. Thank God. When you're so customer focused, um, that had to have driven you nuts. Like the technology is holding you back. So tell me about, 
And you're a fanatic about the MPS score, so the Net Promoter Score. Yeah. Tell us what it is, why you're fanatical about it, and how you stack up against Zappos and some other pretty awesome brands. Sure. So Net Promoter Score is a pretty simple question you ask customers. It's, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how likely would you be to recommend us or this brand? Um, and what's funny is our one of our first um, sort of advisors is this uh, Welsh um, guy named Neil Morgan, who is tenured at Cambridge University in the UK, and he's a professor at IU now, and he hates Net Promoter Score, and he even taught a class to me when I was in business school about how useless Net Promoter It went on, this was in its early stages, and now it's, um, it's a way that companies sort of benchmark their customer experience, because there isn't like a universal score that, that says customer experience. So that's why I like it. I feel like it is the best measure to compare yourself with another company because everyone more or less uses it. And so what we do is every customer that we, that uses us, we actually, we pull them in an official NPS sort of way and ask them how likely they'd be to recommend us on a scale of one to 10. And there's a math equation that tells you what your NPS is. And ours right now is around, it hovers around 70. And we implore our customer service team to go out of their way to make every customer happy. And overall, that's, that is the number we look at because it's the easiest number to get. A company like Zappos, who we benchmark against, is about around a 57, um, if you, you know, is what is posted online. And the, culturally, I think the way that this all came about, and you'll remember this, John, is when we first started this company, if a customer called Menguin, it would simultaneously ring on every single person's phone in the company, which at the time was like five people. But it'd ring on my phone, it'd ring on Kurt's phone, it'd ring on Bogdan's phone. It'd ring on Nathan's phone. And we had this sort of system on who would answer. And, and so it, what happened was all of us would talk to customers and we realized the importance of giving these customers who are primarily wedding customers a good experience. And so that has been in our DNA since that point. And, um, you know, like, for example, right now, in the past week, I've talked to 100 people that were non-customers. So people who almost used us created accounts and didn't. And so like on a given day, sometimes I'll talk to 30 people in a row. Literally, it will be like three quarters of my day, I'll just be on the phone talking to these random customers. And the reason I do that is because that is where the value is. And, and so all of that ends up kind of manifesting in things like Net Promoter Score because it's so, so much part of the culture. Like I love talking to customers. Well, it's, that's interesting to hear you say it because, I mean, Paul Graham always says, do things that don't scale in the beginning. And, you know, what's interesting, though, is... Um, an e-commerce business, it doesn't matter how big it is, it's just driven by the unit economics of a single transaction. And if you can nail the single transaction and do a bunch of them, you've, you, you've really built something great there. Um, so I, it, tell me how you focus on unit economics and customer acquisition. How do, you, how do you think about that today? Yeah. So one of the, the interesting things about our model is it is somewhat transactional in that we focus on getting wedding customers and then that event happens and then we have like these groomsmen in this room who aren't going to have that same type of event again, at least in that configuration. So there's been a lot of learning there, but really what unit economics come down to is putting yourself in a position where you have a lot of room to be creative. And that's what I love about the suit and tuxedo rental industry and rental in general is it's a, it's a high margin industry. Um, customers really don't like men's warehouse. They really don't like the local mom and pops. And so what you end up getting is these customers who will seek you out. And so you're getting a lot of unit economic tailwind 
over time. And, and that's sort of the biggest thing that I like about our model from a unit economic standpoint. Now, when you actually get into what we do in unit economics, you know, we're big fan of big fans of, you know, growth hacking and we are constantly experimenting on our website and with our experience and with offers and with, you know, how we advertise, you know, what a retargeting ad looks like, you know, when we show people what ads on retargeting based on when their event date is like all these things. Originally we didn't email. Now we do, you know, across display, which is pretty fascinating, but all this ends up driving down, um, you know, the cost per acquisition or, you know, making the unit economics more favorable for us. And so I don't know, this is a, this is a much longer conversation, John. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all about creating an environment where people are comfortable to experiment and test and you capture the data consistently enough that you, you know, you're moving forward each day, making the unit economics a little better and not worse. You know, well, you made your- to the customers helps too. Sorry. Yeah, no doubt. The, you made your unit economics a lot better with the merger, uh, vertically and integrating. Oh so you guys were a drop shipper, Minguin was. Gentux, uh, yeah. uh, vertically integrated, make your own tuxes. So tell me yeah. about, well, two things on that. Number one, tell me about how that improved your economics. And then I'm not going to let you go without telling me about working with George Zimmer, of course. Yeah, sure. So Menguin was started, there's there's like two schools of thought about entrepreneurship. I think one's called effectual and one call is called causative and effectual entrepreneurship. You go out and you find the pipes that already exist and you figure out a way to leverage them and connect them to customers and causative. You go out and you literally build the pipes yourself and you kind of own this whole proprietary system. And because we didn't have a lot of money to start and because I didn't feel like I knew it was going to succeed. Well, we did it originally with Menguin where we actually partnered with wholesalers so we could service the market without having to invest in CapEx. So we don't have to invest in a dry cleaning facility or a bunch of suits or, you know, um, the amount of, I mean, where I'm sitting here in a, I don't know, half a million square foot building now that is a dry cleaning facility and has all our suits. I mean, the scale of it's massive. Like we knew out of the gate, we couldn't build this. Um, so our kind of plan always was to partner with someone who already had it at some point or raise a big, round and possibly go start buying it ourselves. You know, that was kind of when we got acquired, we were looking at doing about a $10 million series A that would have been like the first step in that direction. Um, because it allows you to control more of the customer experience and allows you to capture more customer value. The, the main thing that we had sort of as a headwind was we were using these wholesalers that all didn't always give the customer the experience we wanted to give the customers and our control was limited there and we were making less money. So George, on the <laughs> other hand, was sort of this legendary, you know, fabulously wealthy and experienced guy. And so when he started the same company we did, he didn't, you know, skimp. He bought the suits and he bought the facility and he had, you know, <clears throat> hundreds of employees and all this kind of stuff from day one. And so he basically built it to scale in a very positive way from day one. And... Um, it's fascinating. And I could go on and on about that from a business standpoint, but that's not the exciting thing. You know, the exciting thing is actually getting to work with someone like George, who is this, you know, iconic entrepreneur that we all grew up seeing on TV saying, you're going to look good. I guarantee it. And all these things. And I mean, the guy is fascinating. He's interesting. He's very smart. He's very bright. And um, he's just fun to work with is the main thing. He's like, he's a good friend now. You know, we, we run these companies together and, 
it's it's perfect because we don't really have to um you know half my job was raising money john when i was running oh, yeah. i don't i don't have to worry about that as much like that's not really i mean i still have to think about the capital side of the business but not in the way that we had to um in those days and so george helps that out but he just knows he's like he knows everything that men's warehouse did who's sort of the incumbent in this industry um he's seen the movie as they say a lot of times and so we we get to learn a lot from him and so yeah now having the scale having expertise on our side still being an entrepreneur we're kind of bringing these worlds together and I, I in my opinion that is why we will be successful and that's why you know every year we get dramatically larger so where are you guys going uh i've heard everything from uh ipo to uh who knows what is what is the future entail are you gonna open a bunch of stores how are you gonna make this thing your dream brand yeah so it's it's really interesting in that there are so many paths to get to where we want to go. And so I, I really, the idea is to know, you know, in, in, the, in, in terms of scaling, we need to know every possible way to get there, at least experiment in those paths to see if it's a viable option. So we have a few stores right now. The only reason we're really doing that to see, okay, how do stores perform at an economic level? It's no different than buying someone from Google. Okay, it works well, let's do this times 100. You know, which in Google, you figure out how to get customers, if it starts working as profitable, you multiply it by 100 or 14 million like you did at Facebook or, you know, or with Facebook that one month or whatever it may be. And so that is sort of the, the way we're going about it is just being very pragmatic and experimentate, like in experimenting. The goal is to IPO. So the goal is for us to get to be a big enough company that we can have an initial public offering and, um, and then continue to grow from there. It's really we see a shift happening in clothing and you've, you've seen this get to a little further uh, evolved point with rent the runway and women and a few services that are focused on women in that you have like this whole generation of people who don't necessarily really want to buy, you know, this collection of suits and hang them in their closets or be tied to like the one or two suits they own. And so like rental is really becoming popular, more and more popular. George tells me, you know, when I first started doing rental, you know, for every tux that was rented in the U.S., 10 tuxes were sold. Hmm. And for every tux that was rented in the U.S., 0.1 tuxes were sold. You know, there's like 10 times more rentals than, than purchased tuxes. Um, in the end, you know, that shifted over the course of like about 20 years. And, and we feel like we're at the beginning of that with suits right now. Suits are very popular to rent. We rent way more suits than we do tuxes now. And so there might be this inherent shift to where more suits are actually rented than sold in the U.S. And um, we'll see what happens. But, but the future is certainly exciting, and we're just going to keep our head on a swivel and collect as much information as possible so we can make the right decisions. Well, that's great. So our time is almost over. Uh, we'll end with four rapid-fire questions. And, and uh, variations of these four uh, are how we're going to end every podcast. So um, tell me this. What e-commerce platform do you use? And what apps can you not live without? So we're full custom, mm -hmm. um, which is really, really, we've used microservices, basically, architecture. So it's, it's a bunch of stuff. Um, the app that we can't live without, personally, is the in-house logistics and fulfillment app that we built. Um, so we actually, we ran on Salesforce. The company as a whole ran on Salesforce. And we, we tore that out and built our own solution completely in-house. 
um, for fulfillment and distribution, which is badass. We can grab someone off the street and they can be fulfilling for us in 10 minutes. You know, when you ship a lot of suits and tuxes, that becomes the one thing you can't live without. Wow, that's great. I did not know that. Um, can you share with us approximate 2017 and projected 2018 revenue? Uh, I don't think I can, John. I can share with that with you personally, but not not on uh, the podcast. Well, shoot, I know it, but I just can't say it. It's killing yeah. me. I'd like to tell our tell our people here. You know, we we always at least grow. Uh, we always at least double in size. So. Okay. All right. So still doubling in size. I'll take that as 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 a good answer there. Um, what is your favorite book on entrepreneurship? The Autobiography of Gucci Mane. Really. Yeah, I have so not read that. It's, it's not even a book about entrepreneurship. I read it somewhat recently. Gucci Mane's this rapper from, um, well, he's from basically Alabama, but he became famous in Atlanta. And it's, it's kind of his story about coming up in the rap game. And I just find it very entrepreneurial. Like I learn more through analog, I guess. So I really, really like that book in particular about entrepreneurship. I actually bought a copy of it for all the management at, um, at Gentox after I read it. Um, but I, I really like, I, I, I read a lot. So I like a number of books, you know, I love the hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz. I thought that was a very uh, seminal entrepreneurial work. Um, and, and there's, you know, just so many to name. I like, um, you know, Nicholas Taleb is awesome. Um, I love anti-fragile. I think that sort of embodies a lot of things that an entrepreneur needs to be. Um, but, but yeah, the Gucci main books on top right now, just cause it's, it's a great read. <clears throat> so, uh, final question, uh, and I always end with this one. What's the one piece of advice you'd give a fellow e-commerce entrepreneur that's doing around a million dollars of revenue? How do you break through that million dollar of revenue annually ceiling? Uh, talk to more customers. That's, that's the advice. I, I cannot, I mean, they're the ones that have all the answers, you know, it's your customers hold the answers to the questions that are sort of stalling you out. That's why anytime I feel like I hit a wall, I go and I'll talk to hundreds of the customers. And then I'll, you know, I organize the data and I figure out what the problem is. Um, and that's the advice. Um, you know, obviously like this, I don't know the, the situation for this typical entrepreneur. If they have zero dollars in the bank then they need to go get some money so they can talk to customers and experiment with their theses. But I think the main thing is you talk to customers you come up with like a thesis on what you think you can fix and then you experiment. And if it works, you do it some more. If it doesn't, you try the next thing and you just never give up. And that's it. You know, it's sort of like a customer feedback loop. That's what I would advise anyone to do. You know, put a, put a calendar invite on your calendar, you know, once a week saying, when was the last time you spoke to a customer? And, um, you know, if you feel guilty about getting that, then you should be talking to customers more. That's fantastic advice. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. Our time is coming to a close. Uh, you were beyond a doubt the first person I wanted to talk to on this, and, and you didn't let me down. It was wonderful talking to you again, and uh, thanks for sharing the Mingwood journey, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us. Yep. Thank you, John. And we, we miss Northwest Arkansas, and we miss you, and it was fun connecting over this podcast today.